happen. Thank you for bringing us into this building. We know that it's in your providence that we are here. There are no accidents. There are no mistakes in the perfect will of God. And so we look up to you and pray that you would accomplish the purpose for which you've brought us here. We pray that your word would come into our hearts in the power of the Holy Spirit, that it would give light to our minds and to our souls. We pray that men and women and downstairs boys and girls in this hour would be drawn to you, Lord Jesus. Would you give them faith and repentance and may they believe on you and find everlasting life. Many of us are your people. You've bought us with your blood. We want to be faithful followers. Teach us how to be that today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Here's a great verse from the Old Testament to get us started. It's Psalm 122 and verse 1. You can follow. It's on the screen, and I'll read it for you. The psalmist writes, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. He was happy. It was time to go to church. I want to read that again, but I want you to read it with me. Let's read it aloud together in a nice big voice. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Just humor me. I'm going to read it a third time. I'm going to read the first part, and you read the part that's in quotation marks, would you? So I'm reading the first part. I was glad when they said to me, Oh, you are reading that like you mean it. Bless you. Um, And you are here. I hope that those of you who aren't able to be with us will be soon, and you'll be able to say, I was glad that I got to come to church today. The title of this series, and this is part two in the series, is Church. There's the title slide. Wish I could leave that up longer because I love it, but I need to move on in a moment. Let me tell you, first, I'm going to share with you three great quotes from church history about the church. And the first one is from the 1500s in Geneva. There was a man named John Calvin who was a pastor, a preacher, a theologian, and an author in Geneva. And because there was a lot of upheaval and religious persecution in surrounding countries, people, even very uh, like rich and famous and wealthy and powerful people, were moving, were flooding really into Geneva where they had greater religious freedom, but also because they heard there's something going on in that church in Geneva. There was a man who's preaching the word there, and people were flocking scholars even, because he was a scholar. They were flocking to Geneva. So there was this growing, massive church, and John Calvin was the pastor. And here's one of the things he said about the church. The quote's up on the screen. Wherever we find the word of God surely preached and heard, and the sacraments administered according to the institution of Christ, there, it is not to be doubted, is a church of God. So Calvin says if you got the word preached, if you got baptism and communion going on, you got a church. They say, well, I don't know. You could have those things and a whole lot of other things that are a mess. What about all the mess? What about churches that have those, but there's a lot of mess? Is that still a church? Calvin wrote elsewhere, here it is on the screen, whenever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, there a church of God exists, even if it swarms, I like that word, even if it swarms with many faults. Was he right? Do you agree with him? What's the New Testament evidence? Are there any churches in the New Testament that were called churches but swarmed with many faults? Name one. Corinth. That's our top one. What's second? Probably Galatia. That's right. And then all kinds of other churches. Every one of them had a problem. That's why they got a letter. Just about everyone. Philippi. 
only problem I can think of right now in Philippi was tell Yodia and Syntyche to get along. But even a messed up church can still be a church. How might churches get messed up? There are many ways, but I'm going to leave the 1500s and go down to the 1800s in London with the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and here's how he talked about a messed up church. He said, quote, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church, right? So it might have the word preached, it might have baptism and communion, it might even have church discipline, which Calvin added in other sentences about marks of a true church. It might have all those things, but it might have a lot of mess, And some of that mess might be because the world is spilling into the church. As you've heard me say before, the church always catches the world's diseases. Look at whatever the philosophical disease is. Look at whatever the ideological disease is that's going on in the world. At any time in history, that's what's going into the church. That's what's finding its way in. Why are we doing a series on the church? Because the church catches the world's diseases but also because we want to be a biblical church, as we saw last week. We want a church that glorifies God. We want to be a church that is biblically ordered, that we would be a people who know how we ought to behave ourselves in the church of Jesus Christ. So we're doing this little study in the church. Last week, this is review. Last week, we saw the nature of the church and noticed that it is universal, but it's also local, and don't get those messed up. And we also looked at the authority of the church and saw it is vested in Jesus Christ, who is both head and foundation of the church, and in his apostles, whom he handpicked and preauthorized to write his word for his people. He inspired their very words, put them in Scripture for us, and he and they together give us the authoritative will of God on the church. In other words, you and I don't get to decide, hmm, what would I like church to be? We look to the Word and find out what does the great head and the founder of the church want it to be, and we follow that. Now we're on a third point. First the nature of the church, then the authority of the church. Now we're looking at the community enjoyed by the church. The community, that's the word. Whole sermons about Christian community. The kind of community, the kind of life we share together, how we do life as fellow members of the household of God. This sermon is about the community enjoyed. You ought to enjoy it. Yes, it's an obligation. Yes, you're commanded to embed your life in it, but it's also something that should bring you great joy, the fellowship of the saints, the communion of believers, the community enjoyed by the church. So let me approach it further in this way. Here's where this is going. Some of you are visiting here today. Bless you. You got up this morning and said, I think I'll visit a church. Maybe you Googled it and you church near me. And maybe you saw a cornerstone. All right, there it is. I'll go there. And you're here. Bless you. We're so glad you're here. You've taken an important and a good step. But I want you to know you're not where you're supposed to be yet relative to a church. Visiting a church one time is not the will of God for you in Christ Jesus regarding a local church. So maybe you come back again, and then you start coming like once a month, every month, which is regular, right? Regular could be every Christmas. That's regular. Some people say, oh, I'm real regular about church. Every Christmas, I'm there. You, you start coming once a month or once every five weeks. That's better. It's good to see you every, every month. We're glad for that. But that's not, you're not yet where the will of God has you for your relationship to a local church. 
Then you say, well, I've become a regular attender, a regular and frequent regular attender, so I'm in church a lot. Bless you. That's getting, you're getting warmer. All right, that's getting better. You're getting close to the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, but there's one more step. What is it? What's missing? It's this. You're not only to go to church. Here's how you could do that. You could go to church on Sunday. Like You time it so you're coming in, so they're all already seated and no one's going to talk to you. And then just as they're saying the final amen, you're going out the back door and you're in your car and you run home and you go in your house and you bolt the door and you put a sign on the outside, don't come in, and you pull the shades and you unplug your phone. No one unplugs phones. You turn off your device and I don't want to see believers again until the next time I go to church. That's not the community enjoyed by the church. There was a community you are to immerse yourself in. Let me give you a little example of how it occurred yesterday in this building. Yesterday downstairs, there was a ladies' breakfast. A bunch of ladies make food, good food. And they enjoy a meal together around tables, about six or so ladies to a table. They're having fellowship. They're sharing food. They're talking. They're sharing life. There's community going on. And then one of those ladies stood up before the group and and gave a talk. She shared from God's Word, and they all took in the Word. And then back at the tables, they had discussion questions written on a page, and they went around the table and discussed and gave their answers. Here's what she would say to that question. Here's what she would say. And they were building relationships and doing life together and building community, and it's beautiful, and it's healthy, and it it feeds souls. It's rich. We have 14 community groups. We're really blessed to have 14 different community groups, different days of the week, different sizes and shapes, some are men, some are women, some are both. And what are they doing? Why have we named them community groups? Because yes, they're studying the Word. Yes, they're reading Scripture. Yes, they're talking about it together. Yes, they're praying together. But they're also beginning to build relationships that are New Testament, biblical, healthy community. So that's what we're into today. The Greek word for community is koinonia. Put it up there for you. In English, it means fellowship or communion. The verb means to share. So we're going to look at community and see it now this morning in the balance of our time in five ways. First, we're going to look at a number of passages from the book of Acts that show us what community life was like in the early church. Then we're going to look at some of the many one another's. Do this to one another, do that for one another, do that with one another. We're going to look at some of the one another's of the New Testament. Then we're going to go to two scrumptious, fantastic, key passages in the book of Hebrews on Christian community. Then I'm going to give you a really wonderful quote from the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. And then, if time permits, I have a few quotes from good current authors about your need, my need for community. So that's what's coming. First, some of the passages in the book of Acts. First, a famous one. It's in Acts chapter 2. Let me give you some background. Acts chapter 1, Jesus has raised from the dead. He has appeared. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now in Acts chapter 2, he pours out the Holy Spirit And the church goes from 120 scared believers hiding in an upper room to 3,120 believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And they start 
living the Christian life together. They start developing their Christian community together. And Dr. Luke, who's a man very careful about his words, very precise in what he reports, he decides, I'm going to report on what life was like in their church. And of a thousand things he could have chosen, he says, I can't write about a thousand of them. I'm going to pick four. Let me see. What are the four main things I should report on? What are the four really significant things I should report on that were true of their life in the church? And here they are, Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to, one, the apostles' teaching, two, the fellowship, three, the breaking of bread, four, the prayers. There's much more going on. He could have picked other things, but he picked these four, and he picked them carefully. But notice first what they did about these four. He says, and they devoted themselves to them. The Greek word is proskartero. It means to devote yourself to something, to constantly attend to something, to give yourself to something, to be committed to something. It comes from the noun root. Um, all of a sudden, I forget what it is. It's not proscartero. It's the noun root of that. Anyway, and it means strong. So Dr. Luke is telling us, here's what their corporate life looked like. They were strong in these four things. They were constantly attending to these four things. They were devoted to these four things. In other words, this is what their community together looked like. What are the four things? First, doctrine. Would love to preach about that one for a while. That's not our subject today. But first, they devoted themselves to doctrine. That's part of the communal life. That is to say, when the apostles put the food in the trough, the Christian cows came mooing. Like, feed me. I'm unhappy. I'm mooing. Feed me some good food. Feed me the, the meat of God's Word. So it was doctrinal. Christianity is doctrinal. But the second thing is the one we're after today. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. To the fellowship. There was fellowship going on, and they were devoting themselves to it. Like, this is what we do. We're believers. This is how we follow Christ. We follow Him together. And we are devoted. They were nothing. By the way, Luke uses the word six times. Devoted, devoted, devoted. Six times. This is the second one. There's one in chapter one. We'll look at it soon. They devoted themselves to this and to this and to this. He keeps telling us. And here they're devoted, devoted to these four things. So their corporate life was not like, I show up at church regularly once every other month bowed out during the last song. Their, their corporate life was, I am devoted to my fellow believers and to relationships with them that are edifying and that help iron sharpen iron and that keep us strong in the things of Jesus Christ. Before we leave Acts 2.42, let me give you a great quote from Dietrich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer pardon me. He was a German pastor, born in 1906, died in 1945. He didn't live long. Why did he die so young, 39 years old? He had opposed the Nazi regime as a Christian pastor. For that, he was imprisoned, and eventually he was hanged. They hung him for his faith. They hung him for his opposition to the Nazi regime. But prior to his hanging, he wrote a lot to fellow believers, here's how we stand in a time like this. 
Here's how we stay strong in a time like this. Here's how we keep following Christ in a time like this. Here's the quote, Bonhoeffer. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. We're not made to do the Christian life alone. We can't follow Christ well alone. So these early believers were devoted to fellowship. Let's see some more about them. Acts chapter 1. Now we're going earlier on. We read in verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. There were a bunch of people up there. Verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves. Same word, proskartereto. First time it's used in the book of Acts. What were those believers doing? They were devoting themselves to some corporate stuff. They were devoting themselves to some gathered stuff. In this case, it was to the prayer. Now, let me remind remind you, they're in an unusual time in human history. You and I are not in the same time as them. A Bible teacher I once knew said, there's historical particularity in this. And what he meant by that is this. Here's where these believers were in life. They'd come up to Jerusalem for Pentecost. They're worshiping God. They're celebrating together with all Israel. Everybody's on vacation. You're there to feast and to worship and to party together. While they were there, the Holy Spirit fell. Peter preached, and a whole pile of them became believers. They believed Jesus was coming back like any moment. And he is. It just didn't happen yet. So they're thinking, all right, he's coming right back. I'm not going back to my home. I'm never going back to my job. I'm never going back to my possessions. I'm just going to stay here in Jerusalem and worship and wait for Jesus. Well, time went on and some of them are running out of money. So the locals who were still working their jobs, who could work their job, they started selling stuff and providing for one another. That's not normative in the New Testament. That is descriptive of what they did. It is not prescription for what we must do. It's telling us because of where they were, some of them ran out of money, they started selling, they started sharing. But here's what else they did when they had all that time on their hands. They're in the upper room, verse 14, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They're devoting themselves. Here's a question for you. Is there any form of New Testament fellowship to which you are devoting yourself? If Dr. Luke had been looking at Cornerstone Church, would he have written, oh, there are a bunch of people who are devoting themselves to, and then it would have been fellowship. Would he accuse you of being devoted to that? Let's go on. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. And we already saw this verse. I'm running past it here to get to the next ones. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now here's what we want, verse 46. And day by day, because of the historic particularity, we have jobs We do have responsibilities. 
were not on vacation altogether in Jerusalem for an extended period of time. But here's what they were doing when they had time off. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day, twice in this, day by day, day by day, those who were being saved. What were they doing? Day by day, worshiping together, breaking bread together in their homes, receiving food together with glad and generous hearts. If you had been there, would he have said that of you, or would you have been out fishing? Like, I went to church a month ago. I'll circle back in another month. No, they were day by day in that unusual time. Then we read in Acts 4, verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. Again, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. You don't find this later on in the New Testament. It was that particular historical time they were in. But I want you to know they're of one heart and one soul. Are you one heart and one soul with a local body of believers who are your brothers and sisters in Christ? It'll bless the socks off you if you are. So we see these fellowship passages in the book of Acts. That's where we're supposed to do the Christian life. That's how we're supposed to follow Christ. But now we're going to leave those Acts, fellowship passages, and move to some of the one another's, one another's of the New Testament. There are 59 of them directed to believers, treat one another this way. Here are a few of those 59. Love one another, John 13, 34. That one's used 16 times in the New Testament. Love one another, love one another, love one another, love. Try doing that in isolation. Try doing that with no community. And then be devoted to one another, Romans 12.10. Outdo one another in showing honor, Romans 12.10. Live in harmony with one another, Romans 12.16. I like that that one's in there. Because if you're going to do community, you're going to have to work at living in harmony with one another, right? Because they're weird. Like, I'm normal. I'm the standard for normalcy. They do strange things. That's a little bit difficult to be around them. So you're going to have to live in harmony with one another. You only have to do that in community. Build up one another, Romans 14 and 1 Thessalonians 5. Admonish one another. Try and do that all alone. You're looking in the mirror, admonishing yourself. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Comfort and encourage one another. Confess your faults to one another. One another, one another, one another, one another. Fifty, what, six times in the New Testament, you're told, You have a relationship with other believers. Here's what you do in those relationships. All these rich one another's love one another. You're to have a community of love where you love them and they love you and the love is felt. It's not love in word only, 1 John, but in deed and in truth. It's not, I love them, just leave me alone. Go home, bolt the door, pull down the shades, leave me alone, but I love them. You know, the Bible says if you don't love the people you can see, how can you love a God who you can't see? So there's community in the one another's. We're going to leave the book of Acts. We're going to leave the community in the one another's. We're going to come to two wonderful, scrumptious key passages in the book of Hebrews about the kind of community Jesus Christ wants us to do life in. The first one's in Hebrews chapter 3, and here it is. Take care, brothers. 
All right? Take care. It's like you're going on a motorcycle ride on your motorcycle and everybody says to you, take care, because they're worried about you. Be careful. Be careful about this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. That's apostasy. Watch out for apostasy. Watch out for getting drawn away from Jesus Christ. Watch out for getting to a point in life where you say, I don't believe it anymore. I'm not following him anymore. I'm done with it. Watch out for that. You want to get to your last breath believing in the Lord Jesus. You want to get to your last breath clinging to the cross of Jesus Christ. So he says, take care lest you become an unbeliever leading you to fall away from the living God. Well, what can help me? What are my resources? What is available? There are many. Here's one. Hebrews 3.13. But exhort one another every day. Every day. Every day. Not just one Sunday every five weeks. Every day. You need believers in your life every day. You need to believe in believers' lives every day. We're all helping each other. Iron is sharpening iron. We're helping one another grow in the things of the Lord every day. Now, I realize that every day might be, six of those days might be my wife. I don't see all of you every day. I realize that, but every day. And how long do I do this? Just for a year or what? No, as long as it is called today. Well, when it's no longer called today, what happened? You died. So as long as you're alive, as long as you're still breathing, from now till then, every day, exhort believers, exhort believers, exhort believers, receive exhortation from believers. Why? At the end of the verse, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hardened. What is God's antidote to apostasy? What is God's antidote to being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? What is God's antidote to falling away from the living God? It is community. It is believers doing this life together and every day exhorting one another and challenging one another and reminding one another and praying for all the one another's. It's Christian community. He, he, builds on this in Hebrews 10 and adds some other nuances to it. Let's go there, Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, without going all wobbly on Christ. Well, I'm not so sure I believe anymore. I don't know if I really want to follow Jesus anymore. I don't know if I really believe the Bible anymore. No, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. There'll be a reward in the end. You'll find everlasting life in the end. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us consider, verse 24. Consider is a word of mental activity. You're thinking about other believers. You saw somebody at church today. They didn't look right. Hmm. Wonder what's going on in their soul. Huh. Wonder what they're struggling with. And you're kind of turning them around in your mind, considering them. Should I go talk to them? Should I call them? Should I text them? 
Should I ask, can we get together for coffee? How, Lord, you let me notice it. How do you want to insert me into their life? You're considering other people. And notice what you want to do for them. Verse 24, I love this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Some of you have heard me say this before, but Christians are like old buckets of paint. Let me talk about an old bucket of paint. I had some time with an old bucket of paint recently. We've lived in the house that we're in for 13 years. It was a new house then. It's a townhouse. It was painted fresh when we moved in 14 years ago. So we've both been noticing Steve needs to do some touching up on the paint. There are some marks on the walls. Steve's been putting this off. My marriage is getting in bad shape because Steve, I'm kidding. But so I went downstairs and I got the bucket. It's one of those big buckets. It's like that tall and that big around. And I pried the top off of that thing and looked in. And you know what I saw, right? There's like a watery, thin thing on the top with not much pigment in it. And then there's this thick glop down underneath that. That's where all the good stuff is. That's where all the pig, it had settled to the bottom. And what did I have to do? I had to stir it up. Well, I don't have one of those cool things where you stick it in and push the button and it goes. So all I had was a yardstick. I grabbed a yardstick and stuck it in there and started, and I turned, and, and eventually, eventually I had some pretty nice paint going on there, and I painted the spots on the walls, and I saved my marriage. Yeah. Some of you are in trouble now. I'm sorry. Wife's going to go home and point the spots on the wall. But anyway, you get the point. Christians are like old cans of paint. If you're left to sit alone under the stairwell in our house, all the richness that's in Christ, all the spiritual vivacious stuff that's supposed to be in you has just settled to the bottom and it's in a glop. You need other believers to be stir sticks in your life. You need to be stir sticks in other believers' lives. We need to stir up one another to love, love for God, love for Christ, love for his word, love for his church, love for souls, love for the kingdom, and to good works that do something about those love, that love. And when do we do the stirring? 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Those who are neglecting to meet together are putting themselves where they might fall into an evil, unbelieving heart. Those who are neglecting to meet together are putting themselves where they might fall away from the living God. Those who are neglecting to meet together are putting themselves where they may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And in chapter 3, it was day by day. Here it is, and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's a lot of encouraging. It's not just day by day, it's now all the more. So what are we seeing? We're seeing anything but, well, I go to church once every five weeks, I come in late, I leave early, I go home, I bolt the doors, I have nothing to do with believers because they bother me. And they will. No, no, it's community. All right, let's leave that and go to a confession, a confession of faith from 1689, the London Baptist Confession. This is chapter 26, paragraph 5a, and it reads, Those thus called, that is to, to saving faith, he commands to walk together in particular societies. In other words, not in the universal church. That's not where you walk together with believers. 
but in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification. London Baptist Confession, 1689. All right, we're coming down home stretch. Take a deep breath. Here are a few quotes from books I've read recently that I thought, oh, that would fit. That would be edifying. One of them I mentioned a few weeks ago, the author is Carl Truman. He's a professor at Grove City College, a great college. His book is titled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Throughout the book, he, in a very scholarly way, analyzes all the things from way back then that have happened in succession to get us to this weird moment where we are culturally and politically and ideologically in our nation right now. Where did all this come from? Didn't come out of nowhere. So he, he plots out the map. Here's where it came from. That guy taught this. They learned this, and they went, there it went to the universities. Now it's in business. Now they're tidying up with government. And by the end of the book, he's saying, and we Christians can probably expect life to get more difficult for us. What's his solution? He offers about four of them, but the main one, the main solution Carl Truman offers is what? What do we need to do in a time like this? It's community says, you need to cling to other believers. Now, it's interesting. The guy who wrote the foreword to that book is named Rod Dreher. And he just wrote a book that I read a while back, Live Not By Lies. Now, Mr. Dreher is very pessimistic. He's a curmudgeon. He's one of those grumpy believers who worries about everything and thinks we're all going to hell in a handbasket. Thinks we're sliding right off the cliff, and maybe we are with shifts in ideologies and big tech and politics, uh, making it increasingly difficult to live as followers of Christ. He says, we can expect more and more soft oppression, which may in time lead to hardened oppression. What are his proposals? What do we need to do? How do we stand? Here's his one solution. We desperately need to throw off the chains of solitude and find the freedom that awaits us in fellowship. And they're just saying exactly what the Bible says. You need to do the Christian life in community. You'll be blessed. Well, that's one of my closing points. We're down to closing points. I'll go through them quickly. One, you will be so blessed by doing life in a New Testament-style community. It's not just that you'll be blessed. It's also you are commanded to. Christ is head and founder of the church. He's the one who tells us how we do this. And in his book, he says, here's how you do it in community. This is what I've designed you for. That's what I've designed it, the church for. So dive in, get community. But the fact of the matter is you'll be blessed by doing life in New Testament style community. When we were young and had one baby, Debbie and I moved to north of Denver, south of Boulder, Colorado, Broomfield. We lived in Broomfield and I went to Denver Seminary for a year, mainly because we wanted to do time in the Rockies. And we did, man, we did. Turned out I didn't like the school, left there and came back here to Capitol Seminary, finished up. We went looking for a church when we got there and there were all these churches, we visited that one, no one said hi to us, we and our baby. We visited that one, not a person spoke to us. We went to that one, somebody said hi as they walked past us, that was the best we got. These were big, well-known, reputable churches. Nobody seemed interested in meeting us. We thought, well, there's no fellowship here. 
And then we went to a teeny little, I mean teeny, it was like 35 people, Boulder Bible Chapel, a Plymouth Brethren Church, where the women all wore a little bonnet thing. Like on our second Sunday there, they handed Debbie the bonnet thing. Like, if you're coming here, you will, all right? We, she did. I almost said we did. That's like we were pregnant. No, no, no. She did. Why? Because on the very first day, everybody talked to us. Of course, there's 30 of them, fresh meat. We got invited home to one of the elders' houses on our first day there. We had dinner at his house after church, and we found ourselves in immediate, rich, sweet, wonderful fellowship. The preaching wasn't so good. The singing was pretty awful. The girls had to wear bonnets. But there was fellowship. And we were so blessed by doing life in New Testament style community. We stayed there our whole year there. Here's a second point in clothing, closing. Without community, you're vulnerable, right? You're, you're vulnerable. You're meant to live it in the safety of community. Without community, you're in trouble. You're like, I heard there's a football game today, right? Is there a football game today? Imagine you're the quarterback. They snap you the ball and your entire line disappears. And you're, now you're holding the ball and all those big defenders are coming right at you. They're going to crush you. That's a Christian trying to follow Jesus Christ without community. Your community has disappeared. The world, the flesh, and the devil are going to crush you. They're going to eat you for lunch. Without community, you're vulnerable. Number three, this is an important closing point. You will probably, that's a nice word, you will probably need to take some initiative. Here's what I mean by that. The one and others of the New Testament do not say, wait for others to do this for you. No, they speak to you. They're an imperative to you. You do this for them. You notice others. You consider others. You pray for others. You lo- it's all to you. There's no, I'm going to wait in the corner. Why is no one loving me? Why is no one talking to me? You have to, you have to initiate this or it might not happen. We all have to initiate it. Harder for some, easier for others. You have to stay, meet, talk, share, invite, cultivate. You have to reach out. You're not to wait for it to happen. You're to make it happen. You'll have to build some community. You probably need to take some initiative. Number four, end closing. By all means, get yourself into some New Testament, rich, edifying community. That's where the head and the foundation want you to be. That's how he's built his church. That's how the Christian life works. There are lots of ways you can do community. Here are some of our favorites at Cornerstone before and after church. Just stay. Hang out. Fellowship together. How about serve on a team? You get to hinge fringe benefit. You get to meet other people on the team. You get to build relationships with people on the team. How about join a group? We have 14 groups. Take your pick. Join. No, don't take your pick. Girls can't go to the men's group. But anyway, go to a group. We try not to do much more than church, team, and group. That's enough for you. That's where we'd like to direct most of you. Come to church frequently, regularly. Serve on a team with other believers. You'll develop fellowship. Join a group. Enjoy fellowship. Church is community. You'll be blessed by it. Let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, thank you for this time and the scriptures and in your presence. Please, Lord Jesus, you're the head of the church. Make us a church, a people for your possession and for your praise. Shape us and form us into a blood-bought, redeemed community who follows you faithfully together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.